Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Air Mic Talks ESG. My name is Richard Kutcher and this is our last instalment of the podcast focusing specifically on the trends and issues concerning environmental, social and governance topics. I am sure we'll be returning to the ESG topics or it will come up in conversation in future episodes. But for now, our last interview is a fascinating one with Svenja Saminski, Managing Director for Climate and Sustainability at Marsh McLennan. I caught up with Svenja on her return from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt in November and she filled us in on what agreements and developments came out of that meeting, where the next action may come from and the role for risk and insurance professionals in the transition. So Svenja, great to have you on to Airmic Talks ESG. Can you perhaps start by telling us a bit about your background and your role at Marsh McLennan? Yeah, hello. Um, many thanks for having me. Yeah, I joined Marsh McLennan earlier this year in, in April, and I'm Managing Director for Climate and Sustainability, sitting at Marsh McLennan at the group level and working across all our four businesses. So Marsh, Guy Carpenter, Mercer and Oliver Wyman. And it's really about providing thought leadership on climate and sustainability across all regions, so connecting existing expertise, but also making sure that we um, offer distinctive insights to our clients as they navigate these new risks and opportunities. And, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about this role because it allows me to combine my science, policy and industry background. So I've been working in this space for a long time. Um, also in an academic role, um, I'm still a professor in practice at the London School of Economics, and I, I work a lot also with policymakers. So this this is now really for me a chance to bring all that together. And um, yeah, I'm very excited about it. Yeah, good. And we're very excited to have you on to Emit um, Talks as well. So thank you for joining us because you have just come back from uh, COP27 in Egypt. Um, I imagine you, I think you've been to a few of them down the years, you've told me. What, what are the headline takeaways and agreements from coming out of this latest COP? Yeah, so I, I was at COP, um, not for the f- full two weeks, but, you know, I was really there to, to participate in discussions, engage, you know, with clients, advise governments, explore new solutions. I think that's important because, you know, COP is actually quite a useful and fertile ground <laughs> for these um, you know, these sorts of engagements. But yeah, I guess when it comes to the negotiations, I mean, I think it's it's been a difficult COP, particularly given the geopolitical context, you know, the energy crisis, recession. So I think from that angle, you know, having reached some form of agreement is in a way already positive. You know, world leaders showed up. I mean, that was by no means guaranteed, but, you know, there was that commitment. And I think yeah. it sort of reiterated you know, the importance of the issue. So I think that that is positive. And, you know, that there were some 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 new agreements, you know, new fund was agreed on loss and damage. But I guess overall, the theme was really, you know, in Glasgow last year, all focus was on ambition and a lot of commitments were made. So this COP was meant to actually, you know, underpin this with action and demonstrate where the action is. And I think this is, yeah, where I guess on the, transition side, sort of net zero decarbonization, people are realizing that it is hard. And, you know, we have, um, you know, also global perspectives diverging. And I think that was actually very tricky at COP. 
maybe on a more positive note, and also given, you know, Amex's focus on risk management, I think resilience and, you know, the risk perspective is much stronger present now and in, in these discussions. And, you know, there's a much stronger commitment on adaptation, on resilience. Um, and yeah, um, Marsh McLennan was um, sponsoring the race to resilience. You know, other insurers were also involved in this. So I think this idea that actually climate resilience is is really important um, that, that has come, come to the fore. Yeah, we're going to talk a bit more specifically about risk management and, and insurance uh, in the second half of this discussion as well. From um, some of the kind of outcomes from COP, developed countries didn't seem to get some of the, the kind of ambitious emissions targets that they they possibly wanted at, at COP27. What do you think developed countries, and I guess specifically the UK, need to do? You know, is it now... If, if that well, I, mean, I would say that UK probably isn't cutting its own emissions quick enough, but they must. Is there, does there need to be a, a focus even more on adapt, you know, adaptation efforts on climate change at the, at the national level? Because whether we cut emissions or not, the kind of the, the the extreme weather is already here, right? Yeah. So I mean, both reducing emissions and you know addressing the you know the the impacts that climate change bring are are hugely important, and we're not doing enough on both fronts. I mean, that that's that's just the reality. So I think when it comes to to the the um, commitment and net zero, I mean, I think the UK's net zero ambition stands, and you know, actually, we are you know, compared to a lot of other countries, we also have legislation around that. So, I mean, it is on a really strong footing. But I think similarly to the private sector, also governments realize that the transition is difficult. And it will not just be a question of putting a lot of money into it, although that is obviously a huge challenge and will require also a lot of shifting capital flows. But it also requires, you know, sort of more, more systemic changes in terms of, you know, infrastructure. And I mean, I think this is where we also need to understand doing this while the climate is already changing you know, is, is makes it even harder. So, you know, the longer we wait, you know, the more difficult it will get. I mean, I think this year brought it home, you know, 2022 saw climate extremes basically on all continents. And that had an impact also on, on transition. I mean, we, we did some work at Marsh McLennan sort of exploring flat risk for power plants, for example. And, you know, the, the risk, uh, I think at the moment, it's 19% of power plants are at high risk of flooding with a 1.5 degree that that is expected to get to 33% of global power plants. And, you know, that's just one example. The flip side is hydropower and droughts. I mean, this year was was also a big, big challenge. And a lot of net zero strategies for, for quite a few countries are based on hydropower. So this year, it wasn't very good for hydropower because we had a long, prolonged um, drought season. So it just shows that we really also need to think this through smartly. And it's not no longer just a question of you either reduce emissions or you adapt. No, we actually need to need to do both. Yeah, and on that point regarding the kind of the, as as the effects become more severe, it becomes harder to solve the problem. But equally, the longer you wait to try and bring down emissions or put the infrastructure in place to bring to have alternatives, then the more you've got to do in the long run, right? A bit like I kind of compare it to the lockdown discussion. In the earlier lockdown, the short amount of time you probably have to lock down for, rather than waiting on in, the, in COVID. I mean, on the emissions side and on on the climate side, it seems like the more we kick the can down the road, the more work you've ultimately got to do in the long run. Yeah. And I mean, 
in a way, it's, it's a fairly simple message, you know. Unfortunately, it is hard to achieve, you know, sort of taking action now is much cheaper. I mean, it, it is expensive. Transition is expensive. Adaptation is expensive. But it is cheaper if we do it now than if we wait because, you know, there are irreversible changes um, that we have already sort of passed. We haven't even mentioned nature and biodiversity, but that's obviously also part of the, the story. But it's quite interesting. So I, I've been appointed to the UK Committee on Climate Change um, earlier this year, which kind of advises government and also reports to parliament on, you know, are we on track? Are we making progress? Because I think that is a really important thing. We, we need to have good sort of indicators to then also see, are we, you know, are we making the right decisions? And often in my discussions, also particularly in the private sector, people think that there's still very much a future problem. And then you see like investment decisions, infrastructure investments being made today. Those put us on a on a trajectory. And, you know, if, if you think that climate change is only going to be material in the future, then, you know, I think you should have another look and, and engage with, <laughs> with your advisors because it is already here. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier, uh, Svenja, uh, in passing the loss and damage fund that was agreed. Um, can, you, can you go into a bit more detail about that and kind of what are the implications for the UK at a national level and any implications that, that businesses maybe should, should take note of or be, or be aware of? Yeah, so the loss and damage fund that was agreed at, at COP27, I mean, that's been in the making for, for a long time. And actually, you know, that this idea of payments to countries who've basically not contributed to the problem but are now impacted, that's been at, you know, at, at the early start of the whole climate negotiations with small island states calling actually for for a, some form of global insurance fund to, to pay to pay for this. So, you know, this is not a new idea. It's been around for a long time. It's kind of now found its way into the mainstream of the negotiations. I think at this stage, yeah, there is commitment. The fund has been announced, but a lot of things are still very unclear. I think at the moment, it's also very unclear of where the funding will come from. And I've heard also some skepticism because, you know, it's unclear whether this is additional funding, whether this will come from development aid budgets. So I think we will see over the coming year and going into the next COP much more sort of clarification on that. But I think it's an... You know, it, it's basically stating that there is a global recognition that climate change is having an impact. It is causing losses and damages and that we also need to take account for, you know, where the emissions are coming from and um, to find a way, a fair way to, to deal with these issues. It's a very difficult one, but yeah, I think it's now firmly on the agenda and I hope that this can also be kind of taken taking outside of the the political conflicts that have emerged around that. So hopefully that fund can then be turned into something you know concrete and actionable that actually supports those countries that need it. Yeah, there have been some examples we mentioned at the start there about the insurance kind of facilities. I know that there's a few examples of those. I know Africa, the African Union has one, um, which which pays out for particular events. I think one of them is drought. And, and numerous African Union countries are part of that. And there's also a Caribbean risk facility, isn't there, which I think is UN or World Bank backed, which again pays out in event of, I think it's windstorms or hurricanes in, in that region. Um, so we have seen insurance use, which has been backed by uh, developed countries or by UN or World Bank or those kind of organizations. So there are some mechanisms there, but yeah, it's obviously that's kind of those countries pursuing that themselves 
and looking for a, an insurance solution. One of the other discussions, which I think some countries are probably frustrated we haven't seen more progress on, is the the ultimate phase down of all fossil fuels uh, that hasn't made it into a, a COP agreement yet. Do you think that will be coming at some point? Do you think countries will ultimately get there? I think, you know, there, there has been disappointment from those who, who argued that we definitely needed to have that sort of commitment, clear commitment there. Um, I have to think, you know, we, we also need to revisit, you know, COP27 comes at a very difficult time. You know, we have this sort of poly crisis, the energy crisis, geopolitical context. So we need to look at that through through this lens. And, you know, the climate action can be discouraged by that kind of volatile geopolitical landscape and, you know, the deteriorating economic outlook, high inflation in many countries. And it's, it's almost like a test case, I think, um, in terms of how the commitments, you know, how, how firm the commitments are, because this is also highlighting, I guess, the, the challenges of, you know, staying the course, particularly also for the private sector, where you want to have clear signals from governments. And I think we see clearer signals at a national level, big programs at, from the EU, but also in the US, you know, big investment programs going into renewables and sort of stating that's the direction of travel. But at the same time, there are sort of short term signals saying, oh, yeah, but we also in the short term, you know, need to, to expand fossil fuel infrastructure and supplies. And, you know, some countries have restarted even coal power stations. So, you know, I think it's it's a really sort of difficult moment. I think overall, the long term direction of travel seems to be clear. But, you know, it's kind of navigating these realities. And at COP, you know, there was one figure, I think, that, that stuck with me saying, like, at the moment, I think there are 600 million people in Africa without access to electricity. So, yeah, I mean, that sort of shows the failure of, to deliver change to those who need it. But at the same time, also shows the attraction of, you know, some quick fossil fuel powered solutions that could kind of um, then be seen as as the easier option rather than doing, you know, this through renewable energy. So, you know, it's it's a reality check, I think. And yeah, hopefully we will come through this with much more clarity um, nationally, but then also globally. Well, again, going back to what we discussed earlier about, you know, acting quicker, uh, acting earlier might need require less action in the first place. I mean, similarly, if if we were to be making better progress on renewables and alternative forms of energy, then you could still be deploying some fossil fuel energy where it's really, really needed, as, as you mentioned, in some parts of emerging countries, which need that quick access to energy, you know, we could maybe get on with doing that if if we had more action on renewables in certain parts of the world where it is possible. Yes. And I mean, I think um, at Marsh, McLean, we've worked with the World Energy Council on what's called the energy trilemma. And I think that is exactly a good description of where we are right now. You know, it's this challenge of having, you know, secure energy, affordable energy, and then green and clean energy. And, you know, we we all know that, you know, that's where renewable are, you know, they could be scoring really high on all of these three. But because of previous investment decisions and so on, we are not there yet. And so, you know, I think the commitment, the signals that are coming, you know, seeing the energy crisis as a chance to basically make sure that we are addressing this in a smart and sensible way are all there. But, you know, there's sort of day-to-day -day pressure on keeping, you know, keeping the lights on, if you like. So, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's move on to, to nature. You also referenced that in passing at the beginning. And nature's obviously should be, and I think is becoming an increasing part of this conversation, nature, biodiversity. Is it becoming more prominent? And how, how are we seeing uh, the risk and insurance world kind of address that challenge of, of, a, of a real you know, biodiversity crisis? Yes, I mean, nature was also center stage at COP in, in Chamashek. Um, interestingly, there will be another COP focused specifically on biodiversity in December. It's um, COP 15 on biodiversity. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's becoming quite clear that, you know, what is happening in our environment, in our ecological systems, you know, not only do we depend, you know, as, as humans, as society for our economic processes, but it also really is, is a key ingredient in our fight against climate change. I mean, you know, nature is one of the biggest assets we have to, to address climate change. You know, we can't achieve net zero emissions without a healthy environment. Forests and oceans play a huge role in, in stabilizing our climate and nature also plays a huge role in protecting us from climate impact. So, you know, mangroves, coral reefs, protect coastlines and so on. But as we know, and as the science tells us, and as the experts tell us, you know, biodiversity is not just under threat, you know, it's it's really not, not in a good, good stage. And the key for the corporate sector is also to understand to look at this through the risk lens. So, you know, what are the direct, indirect risks affecting business models, you know, value chain, portfolio strategies, also stakeholder relations. And then also, you know, to, to navigate that. And I think there are some interesting trends. So there's going to be more disclosure requirements on corporates. So there's a new sort of task force on, on nature-related disclosure emerging. So, you know, there will be a fix on tools, you know, assessing, you know, what what is, how do you actually as a corporate assess the risks that a lot of biodiversity brings to your business model? It's not an easy answer. There, there are some tools yeah. and we're sort of exploring that now with, with clients. We produced our first report on that. But at the same time, also thinking what is the impact that my business has on the environment? Because it kind of works obviously both ways. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a huge area because, you know, the, the environment isn't in a good state. So, you know, continuing the theme of the kind of the risk and insurance perspective or risk insurance uh, lens on this, obviously, this topic of climate crisis and I guess ESG even more broadly is a is a very broad topic that I kind of from the conversations we've had in this podcast over the last year, I kind of put kind of the impacts of the corporate world, I guess, into two buckets. One is what the corporate is doing in regards to make being its own good corporate citizen and making its own changes that might be necessary within the group to kind of have a positive impact on on the planet and, and the world that they live in. Um, and of course, part of that is managing risks of reputation and, and greenwashing, which we're going to come on to separately later. And the other side is, of course, actually mitigating and dealing with the extreme weather changes which are already here and upon us, which we've touched upon. So bearing this huge topic in mind and everything we've talked about, how do risk managers and corporates kind of internalize and contextualize these developments and, and the trajectory of change that we're on? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this this puts a lot of um, topics on the plate of risk managers and, and you know, in, insurance um, buyers, but also, you know, brokers and, and, and carriers and underwriters. So I think it helps to look through this through the lens of data, tools, governance, reporting, and then new innovative solutions that actually help 
you know, to, to address these, these risks. And I think, you know, there has been, you know, significant developments in terms of, you know, new data, new tool being available. I think, you know, modeling and understanding of the risk has, has come, come a long way. I think what my observation is, are we using those tools and are we sort of taking that, internalize that and then make that part of our, you know, decision strategy? So I think disclosing risk is, is important, but it's only actually going to be really useful if you then also use it in your own internal processes. So I think that's where a lot of corporates, um, but also insurers and also brokers are still at, you know, it's kind of understanding the risk, but then internalizing that and then take turning this into, you know, new solutions. I mean, I think there are massive opportunities when it comes to develop new solutions. I mean, we've just talked also about the transition, you know, these are massive changes in terms of our energy system, new technologies coming to play. All of that brings new risk. And, you know, we'll, we are already seeing sort of innovative insurance solutions um, addressing that. But I mean, I think for me, it's really important point some from my experience, um, it's this question of, you know, making sure that you have a proper sort of internal governance structure around this. And, you know, it's, it's not just, you know, the job of the sustainability person. No, it really requires yeah. much broader sort of connections across, you know, different business functions. And I think that's starting to happen. But let's not forget for a lot of corporates, you know, that there are some leaders but, you know, the majority are still fairly early, you know, early days on these and I think need also a lot of support. And um, I think that's where brokers can can play also a much, much bigger role. And so what about the insurers then, Svenja? Because we, we seem to hear every other week another insurer or reinsurer putting out of kind of so-called dirty industries, you know, stopping. I think Thermal Coal is one that a lot of them have, have already pulled out of or set targets to kind of exit completely offering coverage for and, and setting their own targets regarding divestments but there's obviously also a balance to be struck between that and supporting clients who are generally trying to make an effort in in transitioning away from those fossil fuels and into other forms of energy production how, how do you see that playing out because part of me thinks that some of it might be counterproductive in the long run it's easy to say we're going to not going to ensure this tomorrow but if that client is actually a client which could ultimately move to has the power to move somewhere else, they're going to need to support to do that. Well, look, I mean, none of this is is easy to navigate, and you know, I think companies are at different stages of their journey and also have different strategies, and you know, that that's the same that applies for for insurers. I mean, I think what is really important is to realize, you know, as insurers and as brokers, you know, this this engagement with client and sort of this idea of supporting clients' efforts and, and supporting the transition by working with clients. And I think, you know, there, there are really significant opportunities. You know, how, how do you decarbonize? How are you sort of using these new technologies? How are you bringing that into your mix? I mean, all of this, you know, are, are really important questions where I think insurers, you know, have a lot of insights that they can bring to the fore and, and a lot of them are already doing that. So whether or not it's a question of exiting a market or, you know, divesting or moving away, I think there is also a very strong focus on 
you know, on supporting the transition and working with with clients, with those who need insurance support and guiding them through that. And I think, you know, renewable energy is a classic example. That is not straightforward to underwrite, but, you know, insurers, you know, recognize obviously that that is, that's where the future is. And, you know, the the technolo- technological change in this space, you know, it's going to be massive. I think we're just seeing, you know, the initial stages, but transforming, you know, our infrastructure, transforming the cities we live in, how we commute, how we transport, all of these, you know, are part of that that sort of low carbon transition. And yeah, I think actually it's quite an exciting time to, to be an insurer in, in this space and, and engage with, with your clients on that. Yeah, I think it does take quite a bit of effort for the insurers regarding the renewable energy space because we I know from covering the captive insurance industry in, in, in great detail that one area that the commercial market often struggles with and captives have to step in is in kind of new risks which the underwriters aren't quite comfortable with yet or don't fully understand yet because it is a new technology and, and maybe the, the risks are genuinely unknown in terms of what the potential losses could be from events or what the kind of uh, loss portfolio might look like and then that's where we see captives step in but i do i do read from time to time svenja that it seems like the insurers want to deploy capacity into those areas they see that as the kind of obvious trade-off from putting out of of so-called dirty industries and it, i guess we just hope need to hope that underwriters are brave and, and kind of willing to start you know getting their pen out and, and writing that cover because companies will need it to, to carry on business yeah i mean you know this is this is a massive challenge for you know for society for for our economy so i think you know we we need to it's almost like all hands on deck and you know we know and at cop we discussed this you know financial flows from the private sector into these you know, into the transition you know that that will be massive and you know the public sector you know has made it quite clear you know obviously it needs to come from from both public and private also working together i mean i think it's a tall order but you know there's also quite a lot of knowledge expertise and now commitment in this space so that makes me you know more optimistic than when i look at the science which makes me often quite um <laughs> quite optimistic yeah. well we're going to come we're going to come to the last question will be specifically on kind of your positive or negative outlook i guess to put it but just before we get to that um another topic we've discussed a bit on the podcast over the last year is is greenwashing obviously it's uh it's a risk which which many emmet members are concerned or conscious about you know how do companies manage the risks of greenwashing accusations when they are making ambitious commitments or setting targets you know quite possibly in, in good faith and, and sincerely, but then they possibly struggle to deliver on when the reality hits. As you say, we're in an energy crisis, there's geopolitical crisis, other things take kind of take the focus. So do you have advice or to companies that are struggling to balance that? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, accountability, you know, that was kind of one of the key f- features also of the discussions at, at COP27. It's like, you know, we had all the announcement, the commitments made last year, you know, a lot of corporates have signed up to net zero, governments have committed to them. So now we need the transparency, but also a degree of accountability is like, you know, what is what are you doing to achieve it? And I think this is where the, this is now actually getting quite, quite difficult. So to some extent, integrity is important. And we've seen some greenwashing scandals. And, you know, there have been more discussions, more call out for more guidance on, you know, what it actually means when you say you're committed to net zero, what does it mean to, to then, you know, deliver it. But 
I think it's also important to say, look, don't oversell it and navigate this in a sort of open way. And I think, you know, corporates can also admit similarly to governments that, you know, this is challenging. Um, There's a strategy, maybe, you know, the timelines will have to be reviewed and revised. But, you know, I think it's, it's important not to shy away from it, but to also embrace it. And yeah, I think there's also going to be more regulatory scrutiny and obviously stakeholder pressure on this. I mean, you know, climate litigation is increasing you know, the concerns, but greenwashing have also triggered more calls for more oversight, regulator oversight. So, you know, this, this is not going to go away. And I think rightly so, because, you know, the, these these commitments need to be transparent and we need to understand what the direction of travel is. And if there are challenges, if there are issues, then I think we, we need to work together to resolve them. But we shouldn't shy away from that. So I think integrity, accountability is really important. Just lastly, then, that, that last question to you, which, which I hinted at before, which is, you know, I think I said to you before in our prep call that I'm certainly a cynic when it comes to whether or not the earth and corporate community and the political will is there to really solve this uh, challenge or problem in time. So in your opinion, are we are we going to see, are we going to get the transformation that is required to prevent the climate crisis from becoming irreversible with all the other macro challenges and politics and business kind of is grappling with right now? Is there a realistic path to mitigate this event? Well, I mean, to begin with, you know, the science is, is quite clear and the science is very strong. Anybody hasn't, hasn't looked at what the IPCC says, you know, go and visit their website. It's, 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 you know, it's very clear and obvious that we are already in the middle of a climate crisis and climate change is, is here, is having an impact. And some of these sort of thresholds we have already passed. So I think that that's really important for everybody to realize, you know, it's no longer a question about, you know, the risk of climate change. No, it's it's a reality. And, you know, that that obviously the question is then, you know, how, how bad will it get? And and that's where, you know, whatever we do on on the transition side will determine to what degree of warming we can limit climate change. But I think on a technology side, you know, the, there are going to be really interesting um, developments, I think, in terms of achieving this, in terms of political will, commitment, the speed of an action. I mean, that that's all going to be a real, um, it's, it's a dynamic landscape that we all have to navigate, but um, there will be short-term trade-offs. I think on one hand, I'm very optimistic about the technology. I mean, we've seen, you know, renewables becoming also much cheaper, new innovations coming into play, also helping with, with environmental degradation, with pollution and so on. But at the same time, you know, I also fear that if we don't really put, you know, put enough effort in now, we will come to a point where the only options are going to be really, you know, these big and risky sort of geoengineering solutions. And, you know, mm-hmm. I, I can already see that on, on the horizon where if countries don't have water, if if heat waves are, are you know, hammering in, well, then, you know, that there will be a lot of pressure on, on, on coming up with solutions that basically, you know, sort of um, block out the sun and, and, and create some sort of um, fight over over water. And I think in a way, that is going to be even more risky and, and dangerous and will require, you know, massive global um, coordination and government. And 
I I hope that by taking action now, you know, it's st- still feasible to actually sort of avert that most sort of drastic scenario. But it's no longer a sort of distant y- utopia, and um, I think we we need to sort of also plan and get prepared for that. Well, very interesting thought to to end on, Svenja, and uh, it's been a real pleasure to have you on to Emit Talks ESG. And um, look, who knows, maybe we'll be talking again in a year's time and there'll be similar themes or maybe even different themes around this topic. So anyway, anyway, thank you very much for your time. Thank you.